You can open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We found ourselves in this uh, little bit of a window between finishing Jonah and the start of our counseling conference where we decided to take a couple of topics and, and see how they might inform how we think about counseling. Now, we said last week, and Dave did a whole, whole Bible hour, that when we talk biblical counseling, we're talking discipleship, we're talking Galatians 6, restore one another in a spirit of gentleness and humility. We're talking Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love to one another, we grow up into Christ. So we, we would call that every member ministry, though not every member would be maybe sitting down formally and doing formal biblical counseling. So last week, we, we saw that man was designed and purposed with glorifying God by representing Him in creation and by fulfilling God's will. And we saw that man it, it, almost immediately, Genesis 1, creation, Genesis 3, fall, uh, the fall of man, man has fallen short of that purpose, has failed to walk in their design, failed to walk in their purpose, and that, that, that failure we call sin or rebellion, and, and it created this, this break in fellowship and relationship between God and man. And it's only through the work of Jesus Christ, who came, as, as Dave so clearly put in his prayer, and lived a perfect life, died a, a, as the only acceptable, perfect substitute in our place, so that for those who turn from their sin and trust in Christ. Your sin is credited to Jesus and His righteousness is credited to you. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin. That's Jesus. He knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That, that great exchange where Christ took our sin and, and we get His righteousness. And we said after that, that the Spirit indwells His people and begins this process of renewing His people into the image of Christ, who is the perfect image of God. So last week, we, we, we concluded that the type of help that people primarily need is to know God through Christ and to live life for the glory of God and to find joy in that to find joy in living life under God's design purpose, to, to, to know God and to glorify Him. And that happens through the work and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we'll, we'll ask this, well, what has God given us in our quest to know Him and to glorify Him and to become like Him? Now, there's actually lots of Lots of answers you could give to that. There's lots of things the Lord uses to, to shape and to conform His people. We, we, we just mentioned the Holy Spirit taking up residence in, in us and conforming us to the image of Christ. We could go to Ephesians 4 and talk about how the church has a... a, a we, we do this together as we speak the truth and love to one another. We grow up into Christ together. So He has provided you with the Holy Spirit. He has provided you with brothers and sisters in Christ to speak into your life, to encourage uh, or, or to even admonish as, as needed. God uses circumstances to mold and to shape His people, to sort of reveal our hearts to us, to know where we might need to repent of idolatry. But today we want to think about the Scripture specifically, that God has given us His Word as we seek to live life under our God-designed purpose. 
to glorify Him by becoming like Christ. Now, much like last week, right? There's a lot of things about the doctrine of man that we, I wanted to say, we could have said, but we can't say everything. Same thing this morning, right? There's a lot we could say about Scripture. This morning, I want to focus in on, kind of hone in on what we call the sufficiency of Scripture. If you picked up the notes on the way in, um, you, you might see that main point there. Here's how we're going to define sufficiency. That the Bible contains all that we need in order to be saved, to know God's will, and to live a life pleasing to Him. The Bible contains everything that we need to know. You could stop there. Everything you need to know. But in order to be saved, to know God's will, and to live a life pleasing to Him. So let's look at that. Look there in First Timothy or Second Timothy three. Our first point this morning: the scriptures are sufficient to be saved. Look in verse fourteen and fifteen. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So to sort of set the, set the context a bit as we, as we jump into this letter from Paul to Timothy, this is actually uh, the, probably the last letter that Paul wrote. He says there in chapter 4 that his life is being poured out as a drink offering. He is about to die. He's going to be put to death for preaching the gospel. And so he's writing to his young protege, Timothy, instructing him in how he ought to conduct himself. And so we have in 2 Timothy sort of the the last words of, of a dying man in that sense. And in essence, he tells Timothy this, you need to cling to what you've been taught. You need to cling to those sacred scriptures. And that's interesting because chapter 3 actually begins with sort of this, this list of, of vices. And, and, and again, Dave read those earlier. Uh, earlier. Uh, this list of vices that will characterize the last days. Now, we understand the last days to be the time in between the, the, the ascension of Jesus and the return of Jesus. Well, what, what will these last days look like in this world? Well, Dave read it for us. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, and it just goes on and on and on. But Timothy, in verse 10, that's what he's sort of contrasting. This is what the last days are going to be like. But you, Timothy, there in verse 10, you are following my teaching, Paul says. My teaching, my faith, my example. So Timothy's not characterized by these. He has patterned his life after his mentor, who happens to be the Apostle Paul. And so you see this contrast between the world and Timothy. And he does it again there in verse 14. But as for you, well, again, he's saying there's going to be these false teachers that are coming and they're going to be, they're deceived themselves and they're going to be deceiving others. But as for you, Timothy, don't, don't be deceived. Cling to what you've been taught. Cling to those sacred scriptures. So that's, that's the context. How should Timothy respond? The culture is hostile. Falsehood abounds. False teaching abounds. Sin is rampant. Uh, uh, abuse, brutality, Paul says. Self-indulgence is the norm. That sounds 
a little bit like today. What was Timothy to do? And what, are, what then are we to do? Well, Timothy was to remain faithful to what he has been taught. There's false teachers out there that, that Paul's saying, they're just going to continue to go down and down and down. But you, Timothy, don't do that. And he reminds Timothy that these, these truths were pa- passed down to him from, from several different people in his life. Right? He says, remember, remember who passed this down to you. Paul actually mentions Timothy's mom and grandma in the opening of the letter. They were, they were faithful, God-fearing women who likely poured these sacred scriptures into Timothy's life. The apostle Paul, there in, in the text, it says, you followed my pattern, my example, my faith, my teaching. So the apostle Paul has passed down this truth to Timothy. It's likely that Timothy grew up going to us local synagogue as a child, learning the scriptures there. So Paul's essentially saying this. These truths don't don't neglect or forget who has passed these down to you. They've come from different people in your life, but the content that was delivered is what Paul wants to focus on. The content is those, he says, sacred writings. The content that was delivered to him from grandma, from mom, the apostle Paul, the synagogue, was the scriptures. That's what Paul says there in verse 15. You have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now clearly, Paul's writing before the the, the completion of the New Testament the, the immediate reference when Paul talks about these sacred writings would, would have been the Old Testament scriptures that, that Timothy had learned as a child. Right? That's, that's the immediate reference in our text, but we have good reason as we think about the sufficiency of scripture this morning to include, include the New Testament. Right? Paul seems to be in, in, in 1 Timothy. In fact, if you're in 2 Timothy, you can just flip maybe like a page or two over. In 5.18, he says, For the Scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Well, that's from, that's from the Old Testament. That's from the Pentateuch. And the Scriptures also say this, The laborer deserves his wages. What's that from? Well, the, the, the idea is present in, in the Old Testament. But, but those exact words are actually from the lips of Jesus that Luke records in Luke chapter 10 as he sends the disciples out and says, the laborer deserves his wages. So Paul says, I'm quoting scripture here. What does he quote? Luke chapter 10. Or also when Peter's writing and he's talking about these false teachers that want to undermine scripture and they, he says this. He's talking about the apostle Paul. There are some things in them. Paul wrote some things that are hard to understand, he says, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So Peter's referring to things that Paul wrote as scripture. So we have good reason this morning as those who live in a date and time past the completion of the New Testament, when we see this instruction, how God inspired His Word to think Bible, all right, Old and New Testaments. 
But even, even though Paul, interestingly enough, even though Paul's immediate reference is, is the Old Testament, he says the Bible is able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. This salvation that Paul talks about, it's, it's probably talking about more than conversion. Right? A lot of times we use salvation and what we really mean is like justification. Right? But oftentimes in the Bible, Paul's going to use that word salvation in more, more of a broad sense. It's going to encapsulate not only your justification, but your growth in Christ, the Spirit working in you, you're being conformed to the image of Christ, and your eventual glorification where you end up in God's presence forever. Paul oftentimes uses salvation to describe the totality of God's work in forgiving sins, transforming a person, and bringing them home safely, complete, completing the work that he began in them. This is the way the apostle Peter uses it in 1 Peter 2.2. 2. He talks about salvation more in this, this big-time sense, not just your past justification, but also your present sanctification, future glorification. He says this, Like newborn babies crave the pure spiritual milk, that is the word, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. It's sort of capturing the whole work of God in your life. So the Word of God not only awakens people to the, the glory of the gospel in Jesus Christ, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The, the, the Word of God, the preaching of the gospel is not only instrumental in that initial, uh, the Spirit uses that to, to make people alive in Christ and embrace Christ by faith, but it also instructs us in, in what do we do after we are justified? What do we do after we're forgiven? What do we do after we enter into proper relationship with God through Christ? And not only that, but the Word of God then fills us with hope for the future, the outcome of our faith, the presence of God. So this is, this is what the sacred writings do. They make you wise unto salvation. And it's able to accomplish that in you. Right? The Bible gives you everything you need to know God. Everything you need to be reconciled to Him. Everything you need to follow Him faithfully after coming to Him. And everything you need when that, when that last day draws near and you are taking your final breaths to stare death in the face and say, all you can do is take me into the presence of my Savior. The Word of God, it, it, it makes you wise unto salvation. The Bible has everything anyone needs to understand the gospel, to be saved, to live a life pleasing to Him, and to have the hope of eternal glory. The Scriptures, and again, I'm using save like Paul does, I think, here in that broader sense. The Scriptures are sufficient for people to know how to be saved. Number two this morning, the Scriptures are sufficient to know what God wants you to know. They're sufficient for you to believe what God would have you believe. Look in verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So Paul 
keeps, keeps going. These sacred writings, they're able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And he, and he just keeps going and highlighting the, the value of Scripture. And, and he sort of answers this question, well, what is it about Scripture that would cause Paul to call them sacred? Or we might ask this, how can words on a page do the sorts of things that Paul says the Bible does? How can words make you wise unto salvation? And what Paul does, he says, because these aren't ordinary words. They come from a different source than any other book that's ever been penned. And so what he does is he points to the divine origin of Scripture. He says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, your Bible might say inspired. All Scripture is inspired. And that's, that's fine, although inspire means to breathe in. in, in all right. It's okay as long as you realize that, that inspired doesn't mean something like, man, that actor gave, that Broadway actor gave an inspired performance, right? It's not that. It's not, it's not saying, this is real, these words are really inspirational. No, it, it describes the source which, from which the scriptures are derived. They are from God himself. Right again, Second Peter Peter kind of helps us fill in the details a bit here. He said, no, how, how did this happen? Well, it happened through the Spirit of God. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So just as the prophets spoke, and as they spoke, they delivered not their own message, they delivered the words that were given to them from God, so the authors of Scripture recorded the very word of God to them. God did not simply inspire ideas or, or, or big thoughts that, that the Apostle Paul was then responsible to kind of flesh out on his own. God worked in such a way that the human authors, even though in God's wisdom, they sort of maintain some of their own personality, right? You can read uh, Paul like we are, and it's sort of like this, this very formal outline almost. And Jeff's walking through First John. When he has opportunity to preach, it's sort of like, we'll just kind of circle around here, and we'll hit the target at some point. Right? He, he just, it's totally, they maintain their own personality, but the words that God intended were penned exactly the way he intended them. So if the source of Scripture is God Himself. If the Bible is the, the, the breathed out Word of God, then a few things follow. And this is where I said, like, man, I wish we could say more. I wish we had more time. I'm just going to mention a few things quickly, and then we'll, get, we'll, we'll return to sufficiency. One, the Bible is authoritative. It is God's revelation of Himself and His will to man. And this is the way the scriptures talk about itself. You know, I said I spent some time with the, with the young kids upstairs a few weeks ago trying to answer questions about, about the Bible. And one of the questions we asked was, well, what does the Bible even claim to be about, true about itself? Does it claim to be the word of the Lord 
Yeah, it does. If you read Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It, it, it is God's word to us, and therefore it is authoritative. It's not meant to be treated haphazardly. It's not to be treated as mere advice, not to be deconstructed, and I'll sort of pick and choose the parts of the Bible that I prefer. The Bible is authoritative. The Bible is clear or it is understandable. That is not to say that there aren't passages that are hard to understand, right? Peter said that about Paul. There are passages that are difficult to understand. But it's understandable and that you don't have to have a PhD in high-level education to understand the, the, the meaning of Scripture. The Bible is uh, authoritative. The Bible is understandable. The Bible is necessary. This is, this is God's chosen way to reveal Himself to man and our understanding of our own sin and position before Him in need of redemption. In Scripture, we have God's plan for salvation clearly revealed to us. It's authoritative, it's understandable, it's necessary, and yes, it is sufficient. And again, that's what we're focusing in on this morning. As we think about how do we as a church come alongside one another, we help one another, we, we admonish one another, we encourage one another. Well, where does our encouragement come from? Where does, where does our admonishment come from? God has given us everything we need. In Scripture, it comes from Him. It comes from His Word. So everything we need to come alongside one another, to help one another, to know God, to become like Christ, to have hope and suffering, to resist the evils of this world, to think clearly in a world where, where there's, there's multitudes of deception and false teaching. What do we need for this task? What do we do? What was Timothy called to do? What are we called to do? Cling to the Word of God. The Bible, again, sufficient containing all we need in order to know Him and to live a life pleasing to Him. So when we talk about sufficiency, there's a couple things we're not saying. All right, so we should clarify. We, we've sort of defined what are we saying. Well, what are we, what are we not saying? We're not saying that the Bible contains exhaustive knowledge about everything. Right? Jeremiah is not here this morning, so I'll just pick his occupation. Electricians need to know some things that you can't find in 2 Timothy 3. An electrician has knowledge about how to do his job that's not explicitly laid out in Scripture. But we would say this, Jeremiah has everything he needs to know how to be a God-glorifying, God-pleasing electrician. He lacks nothing to know how to glorify God in his job. So it doesn't mean that, that the Bible has exhaustive knowledge about everything. God didn't give us that. He didn't choose to give us that. The Bible has a very specific purpose. It also does not mean that, that all outside sources are, and, and observations are untrue. Matthew Barrett says this. He's a theologian. While there may be many important authorities archaeology, science, medicine, literature, they are all subservient to Scripture. Why? Because God's Word alone is breathed out and without error, 
fully trustworthy and sufficient for faith and practice. Right? So there's other helpful things. When you go to the doctor, you, you receive some help there. But everything, everything, science, uh, psychology, literature, all of it subservient to Scripture. Heath Lambert says this. He's a, a biblical counselor and a pastor in Florida. The doctrine of sufficiency does not mean that biblical counselors reject medical science. Right? We don't want to be guilty of overcorrection. In fact, I'll say that in a second. It does not mean that biblical counselors reject medical science since many problems that human beings face are physical in nature and so fall outside the bounds of the subject matter of Scripture and the competency of biblical counselors. So we want to we avoid overcorrection, right? Our world has totally dismissed Scripture, blamed every type of behavior on the body or on circumstances. So we don't want to be danger and, uh, guilty of the danger of overcorrecting. Here's what I mean. I don't, I don't think we're... Uh, this isn't a rebuke. This is sort of like, I think, I think we've landed where we need to land. But when I was in my former church, we had a lot of young guys, and they would sort of get a hold of biblical counseling truth, and they wouldn't know what to do with it. And they would hurt people because they would, sort of like Job's friends, they would apply things that, that, that are sometimes true to the wrong person. And so they would look at somebody who's maybe suffering from a legitimate physical problem or, or requiring medical intervention and say, oh, you just need to repent. Right? That's what we're saying. We, we want to understand uh, that we're not rejecting all kinds of medical science, but it's subservient to Scripture. And most things today, to be honest, that purport to be science fall far below the standard of science. Right? That's the problem. When you, when you read studies show, right? Just put on like your discernment goggles. Because you can go and find a, a different study and they'll say, studies show, and they'll say the exact opposite thing. All right, so that which purports to be science is not often science. So God is the source of Scripture, teaching us that it is authoritative, it is clear, it is necessary, and it is sufficient. By the way, if you have questions about like where, how do we, how do we distinguish between what's a biological thing and what's a spiritual thing and, and the inner man and the outer man, you can go on our website, and Dave Johnson spoke on this, I think, each of the last couple of years in our counseling conference. He's a physician and, uh, and a biblical counselor, so in a great position to try to discern some of these things. And it's not always easy, right? But notice, notice this, right? We said the word is authoritative. It's clear. It's necessary. It's sufficient. But notice, before we kind of move on to how it is profitable how God delivered this to His people. It says He breathed it out. He breathed it out. And throughout Scripture, God's breath is associated with His life-giving Word. It's, a, it, it's His Word going forth. Think about creation. God's Word goes forth, and, and, and in a moment, the, 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 the world is teeming with life. He created all that is. He created life through, through His Word, through His breath. He breathed into Adam the breath of life. 
Think about John 1 where, where Jesus is called the Word. What's true of the Word in John 1? In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The Word was, was sent out and it brings life. And it represents life. And here we have the Word of God breathed out and it brings new life to us. How does it do it? By pointing us to Jesus Christ, to, to the Word who came to reveal the Father to us. The end of the Bible is, is that we might know God, who He is and what He has done through Christ to reconcile us to Himself. And He does it through His life-giving Word. The, 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 the life-giving Word that points us to the Word, Jesus Christ, so that we might know God. So to be made wise unto salvation, to sort of jump back up into that, that phrase, is to find life in the message of Christ that we know from the pages of Scripture. And that's what God's Word does. You see, there's a way to read the Bible that doesn't make a person wise unto salvation. And it's, it's to be blinded from seeing Christ in its pages. I don't know if you caught that in verse 15, but it's, it's interesting, again, that Paul's talking about primarily about the Old Testament and says that these, these sacred writings, they're able to make you wise to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Right in 2, Timothy, or 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about this veil over the eyes of those. They, they read the Old Covenant, and they read the Old Covenant, and they read the Old Covenant, and they can't. They're not made wise unto salvation because there's a veil that's blocking them from seeing the glory of Christ. So the end goal of God's breathed-out Word is that we might know Him through the work of Jesus Christ and to use Scriptures towards another end is to fail to handle it properly. This is what Jesus accused the Pharisees of in John chapter 5. He said this of them, You search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. The religious zealots and Pharisees, they, they could quote Scripture they had large portions of Scripture memorized, but they, they refused to acknowledge Christ and were not made wise unto salvation. They thought that by doing the diligent work, they'll gain eternal life. And they missed the entire point of the Bible, even the Old Testament. It was all pointing to Christ. Those things that they had memorized, they were shadows, and Christ was the substance. So we have the highest regard for the Bible when we recognize that the point of the Bible is to point to Christ and how to live in light of Christ and to know God through Christ. So let me just say, say this really quickly. I've got to be quick here. but So there isn't some disjunction between Jesus and the Bible. Right? There, there's not a disconnect between the message of Jesus and the message of the Bible because the message of the Bible testifies to Jesus. Jesus testified to the authority of the Bible. Jesus treated the Old, 
the whole Old Testament as the authoritative word of God. He anticipated the coming of the Holy Spirit, who's going to bring all these things to, to your remembrance, and you're going to record them. He anticipated the completion of the New Testament writings. And so when people try to drive a wedge between Jesus and the Bible, we don't have to entertain those ideas. They say something, well, Jesus didn't say anything about X, Y, and Z. Or I've told you about that guy who said, this isn't the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. Listen, don't, don't entertain that. Both the Bible and Jesus are described as the Word of God. Because God's Word brings life. And it points us to Jesus who is the Word. And how do we know what Jesus was like? How do we know how we should live in light of the coming of Jesus? How do we know what His message was? How do we know what He did? 2,000 years later, well, praise God, it was recorded for us. Exactly the way God intended for it. Michael Reeves says this, Real preaching must take you to the Scriptures, to know Christ. right? He's using word in there a lot, but I don't want to confuse. Real preaching must take you to the Scriptures to know Christ through whom you know God. And preaching fails if it fails to do that. And I would say the same is true for our counsel. If we try to come alongside one another, encourage one another, we want to, we want to admonish and encourage and exhort one another in light of Christ, our union with Christ, the work of Christ, the forgiveness we have in Christ. Otherwise, we, we become legalistic in our practice. So the Bible is unique because its source is found in God. There, there are millions of books that have been published. And there's millions of books that will tell you how to live. And there's millions of books that will tell you w- what you should do. But there's only one book that finds its origin in God, and there's only one that records uh, God Himself taking on flesh to live a perfect life and suffer as a substitute for our sins. Not 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 the friends of His, not the sins of His friends, but the sins of His enemies. And so, with God as the source of Scripture and Christ as the point of Scripture, we aren't in the least surprised to find that the Bible is profitable. Paul says, or useful. We've been building kind of to our main point for a while, but or our second point. It is profitable for what to believe. So I, those first two words, are, I think, are centered on our belief. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and reproof. The standard of truth that, that, that Timothy was to pass down is given to him. And it's given to him in the sacred writings of Scripture. Later on in this letter, Paul will warn Timothy that people will not always endure sound teaching. They'll wander off into myths and they'll find teachers who suit their own desires. So, so don't, don't go that way. Instead, instead, cling to Scripture because it's profitable for what to believe and what to teach others. Profitable for doctrine. And since God's Word is the standard of what to teach and to believe, then then the Word of God is profitable, it's useful then for reproof or rebuking error, specifically false teaching. So again, how does the church 
do the work of the ministry? How do we protect each other? Well, pastors like, like Timothy instruct and warn against false teaching. And that's a way of e- equipping the body. And as the body, e- e- at, at, during Bible hour or potluck or over at someone's house or over coffee, as they, as they mingle together, they sort of reinforce the, the Word of God that's gone out from the elders through interpersonal conversation and fellowship and relationship. And in doing so, Paul says, we're not tossed about by every little myth that comes, every little way of the world, every little philosophy. Oh, the cultural winds are blowing this way. This is what our church believes now. The cultural winds have turned. Now we believe this. How do we protect that? It's not just the the, the preaching. It's pastors are given to the church to equip the body for the work of the ministry. And speaking the truth and love to one another, we steal ourselves against false teaching. So the Bible can make you wise unto salvation. It contains everything you need to believe. And lastly, this morning, it gives you everything you need to please God. The Scriptures are sufficient to live a God-glorifying life. It's not, the Word is not only profitable for teaching, for reproof, but for correction and for training in righteousness. So Paul moves from the content of our faith to the, to the expression of our faith. The idea behind correction is to to set straight or to set something upright. It's to uh, align one's life with the will of God. The Bible not only instructs us what to put off, but what to put on. And so it, it, it corrects and it trains us in righteousness. There's, there's hope in that for us this morning. That your actions and mine, your habits, your thoughts, your desires are renewed as you hide the Word of God in your heart. How can a young man keep his way pure? By hiding it in the heart. Your actions, habits, thoughts, desires renewed as you hide the Scriptures in your heart, as you meditate on them day and night as the blessed person does in Psalm 1. And renew your mind according to truth, Romans 12. The purpose of this is that, and found there in verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Again, Paul's writing to Timothy, who's a a pastor. In the context of, of 2 Timothy, the man of God is probably talking about Timothy there. But Paul has already called Timothy to be an example to the church. Right? He will challenge Timothy to preach this. And so form your people in this Word. Equip the people with the Word. He's challenged Timothy to, to take what he's learned and to pour it into others who then can go and then pour that into others. So again, sort of what we did in verse 15. I think ultimately we can think in terms of application in verse 17 to all believers by saying that the Word of God is that which equips believers to do what God requires. To do what God requires. There is no thing that God is requiring of you that He has not made clear to you in His Word. He is calling you to glorify Him and He has not hidden from you what that looks like. He has kindly and graciously revealed Himself to us in His Word. 
And it's a, it's a kind act of God that this has been written down for us. Right? Otherwise, you can't kind of check what I'm saying with the Word, or a church member comes and tells you something, you can't check what they're saying against the Word. You just sort of have to, well, do I believe this person has the Word of God or not? It's been written down for us. Psalm 102.18 says, Let this be recorded for a generation to come. Right? Write this down so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. There's a goodness in God in, in recording for us His Word written down so that we have a document to search and to memorize and to study and, and to check what we're hearing on the radio or in a podcast or from the pulpit. So what can we do with this? A few quick applications. First, this in Colossians 2.8, Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. You know, the way you can recognize threats to sufficiency is this. What are they, what are they doing with Christ? What are they saying about Christ? That's what Paul says here. This human tradition, this philosophy, this deceitful false teaching, you can recognize it because it diminishes Christ. It turns you away from Christ and to human tradition and to this world. Whereas the Word of God, what did we say it does? It, it points us to Christ. It magnifies Christ. It causes us to love Christ. It, and, and it opens our eyes to see Christ. So anything that diminishes Christ, we're suspect. You know, the sufficiency of Scripture really came to sort of the forefront of people's thinking during the Reformation, where the Roman Catholic Church was insisting on tr church tradition being on equal ground with the Word of God. Not surprisingly, then, the, 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 the church tradition human tradition was devaluing the work of Christ as the sole source of salvation. So the reformers pushed back on that and said, your lack of understanding of, of the sufficiency of Scripture is diminishing your understanding of, of the necessity of faith in Christ alone. And Calvin said, when you, when you devalue justification by faith in Christ alone, you devalue the glory of God. Where there is no justification by faith, he said, there is no glory there. So we could do that same sort of test with secular views of man that are tied to evolution. right? To deny Christ as creator and sustainer of all things is to undermine Christ. Just consider... One quick example, what happens when we try to, like, sort of, well, we can take some from, from this evolutionary view, man, and we can sort of filter it through the Bible and see what, see what comes out. Guess which one wins out? Guess which one wins out? Consider, consider the, the, the number of Christian counselors who have written something along the lines of, you know what? You cannot love others until you've learned to love yourself. Okay, M many of you will not be surprised that that's not what the Bible says at all. 
But in trying to take a modern view of man and sort of combine it with Scripture, Scripture loses. So you have all these Christian counselors who are saying, you need to learn to love yourself. And Paul says, we read it in chapter 3, verse 2, man, when things get really bad, here's how you'll know. People will love themselves. The exact opposite. Or when we elevate our own experience above Scripture, we're diminishing Christ and we're saying Jesus is not enough, His Word is not enough, my experience testifies of something different. Another threat would be legalism. Anyone who seeks to handle the Bible like the Pharisees and insist on legalistic practices are walking contrary to Christ. Another application would be this. Seek to use biblical terminology when you describe, uh, to try to describe your life, your actions, your behavior, your thoughts. Here's what I mean by that. When you describe things using biblical terminology, you can then go to the Bible and find where those sorts of things are talked about and addressed. Now, I don't want to become legalistic. I'm not trying to get us to police each other and say, ooh, you said you feel like the Nuggets are going to win the finals. You should say you think the Nuggets are going to win the finals. Right? I'm not, I'm, I don't want us to become the conversation police, but I want to encourage you to use the Bible's terminology as best you can. If I say, man, man, I messed up. I have a quick fuse and I hurt my wife's feelings. Right? I know, I know, we know what we're saying there. We can piece together what we mean by that. But I think it'd be clearer and more helpful for me to say something like, I sinned, I'm angry and I'm impatient, and I sinned against my wife. Because I know where to go in Scripture for those sorts of things. It's easier to know to, where to go in the Bible for help and hope when we use biblical language to describe our anger, our impatience, our selfishness. Sinning against someone. We can help ourselves see God's word is sufficient when we learn to incorporate biblical terminology in the way we, we view our life and talk about it. Third and last, if, if, if you're married, if you have kids, why not take these next two weeks, next month, and just make this a theme of your house? This is the theme. The, the Bible is the authority for my life, and it contains everything I need to know and please God. The Bible is the inspired Word of God and the final authority for my life. This, this can become a, a theme as we read the, the, the Bible together, as we reference it in, in passing conversation. The Bible contains the answers to life's most pressing questions and that you can know God's will f- for your life by knowing and studying and obeying the Word of God. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank You that You have chosen to reveal Yourself to us in, in creation, in, even in our conscience, as our conscience condemns us. But more fully and clearly, You've revealed Yourself in Jesus Christ And you have revealed yourself through your word that testifies to us of the hope we have in Christ and how we should live in light of it. Thank you for that, Lord. May you be pleased with the way that we receive and think about the word that you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.